Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, where you'll get actionable tips and advice on major gifts, direct response fundraising, legacy giving, and much more from leading experts in the nonprofit sector. Now, here are your hosts of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, Andrew Olson and Roy Jones. Hi, this is Andrew Olson. Before we get into today's episode, I want to talk to you leader to leader about something important. As leaders, especially at times of rapid change and uncertainty, it's easy to live and act from a place of fear. If we're not careful, that fear can paralyze us and keep us from effectively leading at work, at home, and in every relationship. But that doesn't have to be the case. My friend Ben Straub, founder of Velocity Strategy Solutions, a growth architecture firm that helps leaders and organizations accelerate revenue and maximize impact through data-driven strategies, has just released a great new resource for leaders. It's called Eight Things Leaders Say When They Fear Change and How to Confront Those Fears. This five-page resource gives you eight of the most frequent responses we as leaders have when we experience fear and the specific steps and language that you can use to move beyond fear to action. Click the link in the episode show notes to get this resource today. You'll be a better leader tomorrow because of it. Hey, everyone. This is Andrew Olson with the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. I am really excited today to be here with Karen Paul, who is the Development Director at Science Museum Oklahoma in the Oklahoma City area. She's got more than 20 years experience in marketing and fundraising, has raised over $40 million through her work on capital projects, uh, grant-seeking, and annual fund campaigns, both at the Science Museum Oklahoma at Oklahoma Regional Food Bank and for other organizations in the Oklahoma City community. Karen, welcome to the show today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you today. I'm really excited to talk to you too. We're going to focus our conversation today on donor stewardship. But before we get into that, take a few minutes to just tell everyone listening a little bit more about you and a little bit more about Science Museum Oklahoma. Absolutely. So I'm currently at Science Museum Oklahoma. I'm the director of development there. Um, For people in the community who may not recognize the name, You may remember us as the Omniplex for the state's largest hands-on science facility. We serve the entire state of Oklahoma. We have a regional reach also. It's an amazing institution where we're doing some really cool things, including some capital campaigns. We're doing some exhibit renovations, a lot of different things. And we're in the process of building out our donor base for an annual fund. And then from a career standpoint, my career is kind of divided into two parts. I spent the first 10 years, give or take, working in membership associations, doing marketing campaigns. And then my second half of the career has been in fundraising, which I love. It's exciting to get to talk to donors and help them be connected to causes they care about, to things that they really are passionate about. And that, that's what I love. It's been an amazing time. Awesome. You and I connected because I posted something on LinkedIn that got a whole lot more attention than I expected it to. I was just looking at, at this point, the, the post that I shared, I think has been viewed like 20,000 times. It generated a lot of positive comments. And to my surprise, a couple of yes. pretty snarky, pretty aggressive, negative comments. And, and so just for, for our listeners, the story um, that I was telling was about the, at the start of the COVID situation, I gave donations to about 10 different organizations and only two sent me a thank you letter. And in fact, to this day, only those two have sent me, yeah. you know, over 10 weeks, any kind of response to my gift. And that sparked a really big conversation about what was appropriate with respect to stewardship. What, what really surprised me, and I think is what got us into this discussion in the first place, was this kind of vocal minority of, of nonprofit fundraisers and leaders who reached out and said, like, how dare you expect 
a nonprofit to, to thank you and to send you a thank you letter when we're out trying to do important mission work. I mean, I was blown away by that. Talk a little bit about how you experienced that conversation and your thoughts about, you know, the pro and the con. Yeah. So I had a similar situation, which was, I saw your post, I commented, I'm a big believer in donor stewardship. It's one of the things in fundraising that I'm the most passionate about. I also had a similar experience where we had, there were some, some negative comments directed back to something that I said, which really surprised me because I thought, I thought it was just a basic thing to say thank you for a gift. I didn't realize that we were talking about something incredibly shocking to just acknowledge that you've received the gift and that you're using the gift. And so for me, it's been an interesting um, couple of weeks to think about that and reflect about it. I'm still not sure what I feel about all of that discussion, but I still, I believe that a donor thank you is a basic thing. Even for organizations that are smaller, there are still things that can be done in place just to tell the donor you received the gift and you're using it. That's all. I, I, I don't know that it needs to be an elaborate stewardship plan, and I don't think that anyone's expecting that in the middle of a crisis, but there are simple things that can be put into place that can facilitate a basic stewardship thing. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. You know, for, for me, this kicked off a couple of different thoughts, and, and I agree with you. In the midst of any kind of big crisis, you know, of course, organizations and donors shouldn't expect that, you know, that an organization is going to hold a press conference to announce their gift or that they're going to, you know, unveil a new donor wall in the midst of a crisis with their name prominently displayed on it. But, but I kind of reacted the same way you did, which was like, we're talking about a basic thank you letter, right? Which, which in some cases you <laughs> legally need because there's the new tax credit that's been extended for the $300 donation. So you really do need something in writing somehow Right. to verify that like that helps you just from that helps your donor from a basic standpoint yeah you know that's, that's a really good point you know and as i was thinking about this what struck me one or, or maybe two of the commenters made, made a statement made a reference to the idea that like how dare you expect us to beg and grovel for your gift and yeah. and i thought you know how far have we come as a society when we think that someone's philanthropic gift, so you know, money that they made doing whatever it is they do for work, and they are generously giving to an organization to help advance a cause that they're passionate about. And to, to connect that to the idea that asking to, to be thanked um, or expecting to, to receive, a, a, like you said, a notification that, hey, I got your gift and we're using it, right? Yes. Um, which is so basic um, that that sparks a kind of response that makes people feel like we're saying you have to beg and grovel for support. I mean, that's kind of the furthest thing from my mind. And I don't really know how we get there, how we got there as a, as a society. But I'm really concerned and curious about how we, how we go back the other direction to acknowledge that, you know, stewardship is really about strengthening the relationship, right? Exactly. And one of the comments that I saw was about this idea that you just should trust that the organization got the gift and they're using it. So there's so much that's wrong with that because I don't know that they necessarily got the gift or that it's gone to the right place because we're all working offsite. There are things that could happen to the gift. I mean, there are logistical issues there that could happen that have nothing to do with the nonprofit 
And for all of us who've been in fundraising, we know sometimes gifts, things happen, that there need to be checks and balances, that that's not a, a failure on anyone's part. Things happen. For sure. So why wouldn't you shore that up a little bit just to make your donor feel comfortable with it? And it's simple to do. I mean, a basic acknowledgement or a thank you doesn't even have to be a full page letter anymore. You can do little cards. You can, all of this can be automated out. So why, why is it, why is this so, um, I don't know. I, I don't understand why it's so shocking. And yeah, I, I was really, I was really taken aback by the whole thing. So your point about automation, I think, is really key here because with all the organizations that I work with today, there is at least some level of automation around the, the acknowledgement process. Not necessarily 100% automation, no. but you know, someone you know, somehow the gift gets input in their, into their database, and then you know, there, there's a process to kick off a, an acknowledgement letter that gets printed and, and maybe it gets printed in-house, maybe depending on their size, it gets printed externally and mailed externally. I mean, any one of those things, but there's a, a you know, I would say a, a process that has some level of automation. And so when I was thinking about this, I thought, well, you know, one of the things that this tells me is that organizationally, there are still probably a lot of nonprofits that, that aren't there. That's a concern for me as a donor, because I want to make sure that organizations are being as efficient as possible in their work, but also as a fundraiser, like if you don't have those basic things established, then I, I start to get really concerned about how you can maintain any level of relationship engagement with a donor, because if we can't get the basics right, how can we expect to get, you know, higher level relationship fundraising off the ground and make that successful in an organization when we can't automate a thank you receipt, right? Yeah. And for me, I came back to something similar, but my question would be if even with the small organization, there are ways to automate that and things you can put into place that don't cost a lot of money to do. Like there are software programs or donor management programs that don't cost a lot of money that will allow you to do that. And if we've reached a point with some organizations where they don't know that, maybe that's up to us as nonprofit professionals to put that information out and help build that capacity. Because if you're doing all of that the hard way, by putting those pl things in place, we can save, I don't know, 60, 70% of the time you're doing to make it easier and more efficient for you to, to put those in place. And that frees up your time to do other things and to build capacity and manage more donors. Because if you're that limited, what are you going to do if you double a donor base? For sure. Well, and that's one of the things that I... I think, you know, in, in my narrative in the LinkedIn post, I think one of the things that was maybe a little more inflammatory than I anticipated it would be was I, I said something to the effect of, you know, if you're an organization that can't find the time or the resources to appropriately thank the donors they give to you, maybe you should reconsider whether you're fundraising at all, right? Yeah. And, and that seemed to be, I think, particularly angering for some, but I don't know. T talk a little bit about that concept. I mean, do you think there's a point at which we say if we can't do certain things right in the donor relationship, maybe we ought not to be doing this at all? I'm not sure. I don't know if it's that or if we just need to figure out a way to close that gap for people because maybe they don't realize they can do some of this as easily as they can. Maybe they don't realize that if something costs two or $3,000 to implement, which for a small organization might be a roadblock, that there are donors that would pay for that. There are donors that are, would be willing to invest in that to help increase that capacity. 
I think sometimes as nonprofits, we get so locked into the day-to-day that we don't necessarily look at what capacity building would do. And we don't, we're scared to give up that day-to-day functionality to invest in the capacity because yeah. then we're not, capacity is hard to quantify because you're not, not immediately serving your donors. So then that's a, you really know, that, good that's, point. that's a hard thing. And I think for small nonprofits, there's, they, I don't know that they have the resources to think their way through that. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think, you know, the, I, I'm thinking about, you know, the way that boards and C-level teams make, make decisions around goal setting, mm-hmm. right? And oftentimes, and you probably see this too, I see, uh, I walk into an organization, I say, okay, well, all of these goals are for the next 12 months. But if we're not thinking about, well, what's the next three years? What's the next five years? What's the next 10 years? Which is where a lot of that capacity planning would come into play then we're sort of always in this cycle of just chasing the next dollar rather than saying, how do we how do we become the healthiest organization possible so that, you know, we can actually achieve our mission and not just struggle to, to get near our mission, you know? Yeah. I think there's some of that. And I think most founders and small executive directors are not from a fundraising background. So they may not even have the language or the institutional knowledge to know what is possible. Yeah, that's a really good point too, because you're right. There's so many who you know came from somewhere else. You know, I mean, I, I do a lot of work with uh, rescue missions, uh-huh. and you know, a lot of times it's it's becoming a more professionalized environment now. But years ago, you know, it, it wasn't uncommon for almost every rescue mission CEO to be either a pastor or someone who had come out of an addiction recovery program themselves. And in either of those two categories you don't have a lot of people who have professional nonprofit management or fundraising experience. And I, I would suspect it's the same way for lots of other organizations. Yeah. And I would say that if you're going to a lot of those entry level fundraising classes, they teach you a lot about sponsorships and they teach you a lot about grants, but they don't teach you huh. about the acknowledgement process and how to build that back or what kind of infrastructure is even possible. That's so, interesting. So a lot of times huh. you may get, so far down the line with that, that you don't have, you know, you end up at kind of at a messy point because you didn't know how to build it in the first place. Because if you don't have someone experienced to tell you or someone on your board, which almost no one does because that's not necessarily where boards are at. Right. It's complicated. Yeah. I hadn't even thought about the issue uh, of it not being something that's taught and trained in, you know, uh, like you said, kind of the basic fundraising courses. But you're right. I can't think of a time when I've been in a course, even a course on stewardship, where they talk about the process of getting it done. Yeah. And I don't know that I've ever been in one either. I think all of mine has been trial and error or learning things from other professionals, which is a gap for smaller nonprofits who don't have access to those discussions. Yeah. Same here. So I want to take us in a little bit different uh, direction in this conversation. So one of the other things that someone said was, Essentially, the, the idea that requiring or expecting a nonprofit to thank donors created an improper power dynamic where the donor was in control, right? And I, I can see this if we're talking about, you know, uh, an organization that, let, let's say you, you run an organization that's operating budget is a half a million dollars, and a donor comes in and says, I'm going to give you $2 million, but in order to get that gift, you need to do X, Y, and Z. That kind of framework makes sense to me where we would say, well, we really have to consider this because is this changing our mission? Is it changing our values? Those kind of things. 
But I mean, react to this idea. I mean, do you feel like the simple expectation of a thank you letter perpetuates that kind of environment? I don't know. I'm struggling with that concept too, because I don't see it in those terms. And I don't know if that's maybe my personal biases. I, I don't know, because if I'm coming at it in terms of, I just want to know that my gift has been received and used, then that doesn't change anything. And for a 25 dollar donor or a $500 donor, that's really all they're looking for. They're well aware of the fact that their donation is not a $5 million gift. Like they, they know that at $25, they don't get to have that kind of say in anything. And I don't know that they're even thinking of it in terms like that. I think they just want to contribute to the mission and they just want to know their gift is having an impact because for whatever donation they're giving, they're giving up something else. They could be spending that money on something else and they've made the choice for that mission and for that cause. They just want to make a difference. I don't know that donors are that, do you think donors are making those sort of rational, rationalizations like that? I mean, you know, if you're making, if you're a small donor, do you think you're thinking of your donation like that? I don't think so. And, Have you and ever, I've never in 10 years had a donor express that for something small. I, nor have I. So I've been doing this for 20 years and I've been, you know, I spent three years inside a nonprofit managing the annual fund where we also manage the, the stewardship program. And I can't recall ever receiving anything from a donor where, where they said, you know, here's my $50 gift and here's my list of expectations. We would often see that with corporate gifts. Right. Right. Where, where it's, it's more of a marketing spend for the corporation than it is a philanthropic gift. But most of those dollars come out of their marketing line item, not a philanthropic it, budget. Exactly. And then, you know, occasionally I've seen it with, with really high net worth donors mm -hmm. where, where they're coming at this and, they, and they're really looking at this as an investment strategy more than, you know, a simple charitable gift. And they're saying, look, your organization is addressing a problem that I see in society and I'm making a strategic investment to move the needle. And as a result of that, I want to make sure that there are some key performance indicators around this gift. Right. And, and I, I've also never seen it myself heard of some of those high net worth donors being abusive. And, and certainly as we're seeing with, you know, some of the, the me too type conversations in our sector, I know it happens around there as well. Again, because of who I am, I just don't think I've, you know, it's not happened to me for sure. So I can see how there's risk in that, particularly at the top end of a donor file, but never have I seen it with, you know, the, the general, you know, annual fund type donor. No, and I haven't either. I think, and all I've heard from my general annual fund type donors is that they just, they want to make a difference somehow. They want to be connected to something that empowers them and makes them feel like they're, they're able to make a difference in the community. Yeah. And I don't know that that, and I don't know that that requires much other than a basic thank you and maybe a general stewardship report once a year that you should be doing for everyone. Yeah, for sure. So let's not end our conversation on the negative. Yeah, no. Uh, I, I would love for you to talk a little bit about either what you're doing in your organization or what you've seen in the market for some ways that organizations, you know, on a, on a not extravagant budget can make sure that they're um, appropriately thanking their donors and showing that level of appreciation that really, again, reinforces that this is a, a relationship rather mm -hmm. than just a transactional, you know, buy and sell kind of engagement. Absolutely. So one of the things we've done in the last year is we've moved all of our stuff to an online donation form that integrates with our donor database. Okay. 
it automatically imports in. So we can go in and just run the simple two-click process to get all of our donor information into the database where we can nice. manage it. We've built out receipt letters and thank you letters that can all be customized with two clicks again. And the letter got imported into the database. So we're not even having to merge it out. It automatically is doing that for us. Nice. Which means that we can take the letters, just simply print them out, take them to whoever we, you know, the key person on our team who needs to sign it, that changes from place to place. And then that part's really easy and it's done. And then the system, once you, once you merge the letters, it automatically puts a note in the actions tab. So we've got it all closed out and you have a record of all of that being done. Nice. What system is that that you use? We're using donor perfect. Okay. Which cool. is, which has been amazing. Cool. And for yeah. the price point, um, I will give them a shout out. They've been wonderful to work with. Great. So beyond and that then, part of the process, oh, go ahead. Yeah. And then the other really great thing that we've done is our development committee, and I'm so proud of them, has stepped up and they're doing personal handwritten thank yous. They were the nice. ones who said we wanted to do it because they were engaged and excited about the work we were doing. And that's a board committee, right? Yeah, that's a board committee. Okay. And they, they were, they divide up the list and they write out the notes and then we mail them. But the fact that they're so engaged and willing to do that, yeah, it just that doesn't happen everywhere. So it's so funny you say that. I was talking to a friend of mine who runs a, he runs a company that, that does handwritten thank you notes for organizations, right? Typically, you know, organizations that, that have enough capacity that they, you know, they, they can't handle all of those on their own. And he was sharing with me that uh, he did a, a mailing recently for a nonprofit on the East Coast and handwritten thank you note got a response back, a handwritten response back from a donor that said, we're blown away that during this crisis, you're able to still deliver a handwritten meaningful thank you to us. And it means so much that we're going to go ahead and make a thousand dollar a month. Commitment, oh, wow. Right. So, I mean, you know, I think of that and I think, okay, we go from yeah. a place where we say we shouldn't thank people at all because it's, you know, puts pressure on us to when we do things the right way that reinforce the relationship, donors feel compelled and really step up. And I mean, this donor, I don't know what they were giving before, but they're now giving, you know, $12,000 a year because of that stewardship touch, not because of some great fundraising ask because nobody called them and, you know, made an impassioned pitch. Nobody sent them a, a video email that had a great ask in it. It was a simple handwritten thank you. You know, it was at a time when, when you look at the statistics, donor, retention as a whole across the sector is dropping. So anything we can do to move that in some cost-effective way helps us all. Yeah, for sure. Because it's so much cheaper for us to retain donors than it is to try and acquire new donors. So what's your, what's your perspective on thank you calling? Are you, are you, is your team doing all, any of that or? We're not doing a lot of it. It's just with our donor base, we know that that's not necessarily what our donors want. Okay. We're doing it in some limited, spaces, but we're trying to create kind of higher touch points um, that they can, tangible touch points. So the things that they can keep and reference and look at. So stewardship reports, those kind of things. Okay. Where we can really showcase what we've done. And I know one of the, one of the things that we often hear is like, you know, in the stewardship space, you know, donors will say, we don't want tchotchkes. We don't want, mm -hmm. you know, tote bags and mugs and stuff like that. Have you found that your donors behave any differently? Are there certain things that they do and don't uh, gravitate towards? No, and we, we have not offered 
those sort of things for our donors okay. because a lot of our donors are members okay. of our museum. So we don't do a lot of that where we're giving them extra things. You know, they would rather have us investing in the facility they come out and participate in and do things with, which makes sense because if you're going to have a mug or some sort of giveaway, you would rather have a really cool exhibit that was funded with those things. Yeah, for sure. So compare and contrast for me. Have you seen any difference in the way donors respond to stewardship when they are part of a membership organization like the museum versus the donors that um, supported your work when you worked at the food bank? Well, I think there's a little bit of a difference. The donors at the food bank were more, um, I would say, faith-driven okay. in a different way. So donors, their, their giving was much more, it's a diff different sort of personal engagement and a different sort of donor motive motivations because if you're giving and you're doing your monthly gift as part of a tithe or some sort of um, faith-based giving, it has a different experience for you than if you're giving to a museum. Sure, I can see that. And I would say the other thing is that museums are organizations that people want to make sure exist long-term. So they're thinking about endowments and perpetuity mm. and exhibits and big things. And on the social services side, people are working to address immediate needs. That's so there's really... a very different sort of motivation there in the sense that, you know, no one wants to think on the social services side, you're going to set up an endowment forever because hunger is going to exist forever. Right. People, people will do it. And the regional food bank did a great job at closing a lot of those gaps and opening up that dialogue, but that's not people's immediate gut reaction. But yeah. on the museum side, that is what people want to do because you want that institution to exist forever. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I can totally see that we would never want to say like, hey, well, hunger's going to be around long after we're gone. So, you know, yeah, that, that wouldn't necessarily be motivating. One, one other question with respect to, to the stewardship piece. I'm curious, you know, you, you mentioned like annual report type things. When it comes to like stewardship events, obviously we can't do a lot of that right now because of the COVID situation, but are there any types of stewardship events that you found to be more impactful or less impactful? I've always had the best luck when it's sort of the smaller executive director conversations. So if it's like an executive director brunch or some sort of senior leadership okay. invitation only event where you're not necessarily asking for money, but you're bringing people in and letting them hear about the work you're doing. So that's ver versus some sort of big gala or something. Is yeah, that what you're because I think the gala model is hard. And mm -hmm. um, we're now at a point where everyone's doing one. It's, it's incredibly crowded. Everyone's doing a version of the same event. Hmm. Or at least, you know, in smaller communities, people do similar sort of things. And it's hard to stand out in that. And when you're, you're charging what you have to charge for a table to make these sort of events happen, that's hard. Yeah, for sure. And you're losing... I mean, we all know that. That's that's not something that's a secret. We all know that on any of these events, if you're on the fundraising side, you're losing half, maybe three-fourths in costs to make the event happen, yeah. usually. I mean, it's a lot of work for a small return for so, something that not everyone even gets excited about attending a lot of times. Yeah, totally. I'm curious to get your take on, you know, since you've, you've been on the individual donor side and sort of the foundation corporation side of the, of the equation, other than, you know, sponsorship packages, let's say, do you find that there's a big difference between how you steward a relationship with a, a foundation or a corporate funder versus an individual? 
I haven't. I tend to kind of approach them all the same in the sense that I'm working with my individual, I mean, I'm working with them all as individuals to see what their needs are and to see how we can best fit their needs without overloading them and without overloading us too. It's kind of a give and take because we're wanting to find that perfect match between what they want to fund and what we can reasonably do. And I don't really distinguish between individual donors and institutional donors because they have the same goals in mind. So I think uh, we're, we're pretty close on time for, for our conversation today, but I do want to ask you one more question. And this is a little more on the planning side of, of things. If an organization is thinking about this and saying, you know, we don't have the money to invest in everything. And we know that, like you mentioned, stewardship uh, retention rates are down across the board pretty much nationally. Where would you prioritize stewardship and acknowledgement type activities relative to things like new donor acquisition? I mean, I recognize that both are important, but I'm curious to know as a practitioner in the seat, like how do you make the decision between, you know, do I invest in this or that, or is it a, a percentage of both? Like how does that conversation play out in your organization? If I, if I was in the, the position where I had to choose one or the other, I would take stewardship over acquisition because stewardship leads to new donors. Because if you have a happy, engaged base of donors, they're out talking about the work you're doing. They're doing a lot of that acquisition for you because they're proud that their donation is being used there. They're telling people about the amazing work your organization is doing. And it's just, it's so cost-wise, stewardship is cheaper than acquisition a lot of times. And it's just, it, and from a donor, and from a donor relation standpoint, there's something really exciting about having repeat donors. There's something mm -hmm. for your team to know that these people are so excited that they keep coming back year after year to participate in what you're doing is exciting. As opposed to, we sent out this huge mailing and only a few people came back in for acquisition. You know, even if it's a above national rates for acquisition. I mean, acquisition <laughs> rates are still so low that it feels, right. so it feels a little defeatist sometimes. No, Even I, if I, you've run a stellar campaign, it still feels like you're just not moving the needle. And you can, you can get that sort of immediate return with a stewardship piece in a different direction. No, you're so right. It was so funny. So a couple of weeks ago, I had a conversation with someone else and, and I said, look, your acquisition numbers are really good. You got a 1% response. Yeah. And she looked across the table and she said, you mean 99% said no. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's also true. Right. But I mean, to your point, like we, we rant and rave about a 1% response in acquisition, right? That, that's like a huge success for most organizations, but you're so true, you know, like on the stewardship side, if that can help you retain, you know, 10% more donors or 15% more donors, it, it creates a lot more net revenue and it takes a lot of pressure off the need to be out acquiring more donors. And I, I think it's so interesting to me because when, particularly when I talk to nonprofit CFOs, I hear the conversation of like, well, this stewardship stuff, it just costs money. There's no revenue tied to it because at least in acquisition, you can say, I sent a piece out, I got a piece back and it came with a check. Right. Yep. But so often, particularly CFOs are like, well, wait a minute. We, we sent all these handwritten notes. We sent all these thank you letters. We sent, we made all these phone calls, you know, all, all this stuff. We set up all this backend infrastructure, spent this money. And, and I can't necessarily tie a one-to-one -one gift to it. 
And we always make the point that like, no, this is a revenue center. You have to cultivate it and it will pay off over time in retention and long-term value and additional gifts. But it's really hard for some organizations to stomach because it's not, it doesn't have that like immediate feedback loop that you get with an appeal or with an acquisition solicitation. Do you see the same thing? I think that's true. But at the same time, if you're looking at your annual fund and your programmatic funding, and you're doing a good job of stewardship, you should start to see spikes in that, I would think, in the year or two. And then that would be something your CFO can see. Yeah, I, I would. You're doing some stewardship retention pieces. Like if you're going to choose between a donor ac acquisition piece or something to engage your lapsed donors, then you can see something that's tangible with a lapsed donor return too. And that yeah. sometimes is higher than even an acquisition piece. Totally agree. Yeah. Well, uh, Karen, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. Thanks for jumping into the conversation on LinkedIn and, and talking with no, us thank about you. stewardship. Really glad to have you here and appreciate adding your voice to the conversation. No, thank you so much for having me because I love talking about this stuff. And, you know, the sector is so important. We need to have these discussions. And right now we need them more than ever because we're all going through a set of challenges that none of us know what's going to happen. Absolutely. But we all are in agreement that it's completely going to change the sector somehow. So if anybody listening to this wants to reach out and, and hear more from you, talk about stewardship, what's the best way for people to reach you? Yeah, they can find me over on LinkedIn. It's under my name. It's under Karen Paul. And, I, and if they have any questions about setting up a basic stewardship system, I mean, feel free to reach out to me. I can tell you everything we've done. I'm happy to share that information. You know, I'm, I'm a practitioner. I don't have a course or anything that I'm selling. I'm not looking for clients. I mean, I'm just here to help share that information. So please, please ask the questions. Awesome. Thanks. I will, uh, I'll link to your LinkedIn profile in the show notes. Oh, perfect. Thank you. Great. Yeah. Thanks again for being here. And thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast brought to you exclusively by Newport One. Newport One can make a difference in your fundraising so that you can change the world. You can always reach us at podcast at newportone.com. Please take a moment to rate this episode on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate this episode, it will help more nonprofit leaders just like you to help find us and get the information that they need to raise more funds for their organization. Thanks again for listening today.